your business should support rather than degrade the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. That leads you to undertake all your activities with a very different mindset. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community, undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Vincent Stanley has been at Patagonia since 1973, almost as long as I've been alive. It was started by one guy who bought an anvil in order to make climbing equipment that worked for him. And now it's a global brand with incredible customer loyalty. In fact, I contacted him because I liked Patagonia's mission and how they bet the farm so many times and come out ahead acting on their environmental values, taking a leadership position as a result. Most people don't do this. They don't realize that this is exactly what people are scared of doing. They've done and they've succeeded by it. He today is their chief storyteller. And talking to him, you see why. He describes the growth and challenges at Patagonia over the decades. You see his own personal growth. And you see the insight as to how connecting with nature is not against business. It's part of business or it can be. And when you make it that way, it works at the personal level for him. It works on the personal level for me. And it works on the company level. Vincent is also one of the panelists at the Leadership in the Environment's first panel of experts. So if this is April 2nd or April 3rd, come to the event. It's April 3rd at 6 to 8 p.m. at NYU. If you go to joshuaspodek.com, you'll find the link to the Eventbrite with all the details. And without further ado, let's listen to Vincent. So I want to give a little context that uh, you and I, this is the third time that we're talking. And the first time that we met, you were on a panel at a Patagonia store talking about, uh, I guess, the growth of farming among, maybe it's young, among younger people, the, the growth of farming or resurgence, I should say. Right. And I had been told that to come to this event by, I was at a different Patagonia store and they said, you should come by to that. I, I spoke to you and we talked a little bit there, but the next conversation was by phone, I think. And it was I, like, I don't remember all the details, but when I hung up, I was like, I wish I'd recorded that for the podcast because it was really... <laughs> I talked to a lot of people who are leaders. I talked to a lot of people who are environmentalists, but you go back to, I read online that you go back to 1973 at Patagonia. Is that, that tells me that's a very successful company. If you're a director, then you're a leader and you're an environmental person. And I really enjoyed that conversation. Well, I did too. Could you give a bit of what you do? You have this crazy title of like chief storyteller, chief philosophy, something or other, which I would associate with like some Silicon Valley very young company. What's your role? What has been your role over time? Yeah. Well, I was one of the original employees and I started work at the company when it was still a mountain climbing equipment company, about 10 employees in 1973. And that was the year that um, Yvon Chouinard, who started Patagonia, is also my uncle. That's the year he started the clothing company. So those of us who were there on the ground, it was a very sort of cooperative 
enterprise. And by cooperative, I mean almost cooperative by necessity because we were all very young and none of us knew what we were doing. So we, <laughs> so we used each other almost as checks. You know, if you, you say, okay, well, we're going to go to our first trade show. Well, what do you need to do? Well, you need to build the booth and reserve the space and, and staff it. And what do you do to do that? And we would all use each other to uh, figure out what it was that needed to be done. And then we would go ahead and do it. The environmental side of the company was there was already a seed there because Yvonne was a climber and he started in business not to get into business but because he was a a very young climber doing these climbs in uh they were called big wall climbs in Yosemite in the late 50s and there was he couldn't find any gear he couldn't find the right gear that he needed every all the uh the pitons which are the metal spikes used to that climbers used to uh, protect themselves. They, they hammer that in and connect themselves by a series of ropes. And it's kind of symbiotic between the, the belayer who goes first and the belayed. And when you extend, when you hammer in a piton with these ropes, what happens is if the lead climber falls, then the belayed climber rises and it, it breaks a serious fall. And these spikes that were used were all imported from Europe and they were made out of soft iron and they degraded after one use two at the max they were very cheap and you didn't really need in european climbs because they'd all been so well established you didn't need pitons that could be reused time and again but on these big walls in yosemite you're climbing three thousand to five thousand vertical feet you have to carry you know the equivalent of a buick up the wall if you're going to dispose of the of, of each piton as you place it he decided he wanted to make the gear he needed. He borrowed $800 from his parents, bought a used coal-fired forge, and started to make in his parents' backyard these hard steel pitons that could be reused many times over. And then he expanded this business and started to make design and make other types of climbing gear. So the reason this is critical is when we're talking about the creation of Patagonia, we're not talking about somebody with a marketing idea or somebody with an idea of an abstract concept of a clothing company or, or kind of a, a marketing idea that's very different from the interests of the person who starts it. We're talking about something that really organically grows out of a strong interest in a, in a single person that he shares with other people. We're also talking about an environmental ethic that begins because climbing is fundamentally a direct relationship with nature in a, and combines kind of the critical moments of human consciousness. Because if you're on a climb, you really have to pay close attention to what you're doing. You can never be distracted and you're in kind of constant motion. So your, your relationship to nature is direct. And then as time went on, the late 60s, early 70s, I think climbers as well as surfers and fishermen and other people who spend a lot of time in the natural world began to see the environmental degradation before many of the rest of us did. So a climber would go back to Kilimanjaro for a second time and notice that the glacier had shrunk by X percent since we'd last been there. So we're using the business as a pulpit there. But then the other thing that started, that developed with our company was a gradual realization that 
of what we did as a business, what we were doing ourselves to harm the natural world, and not necessarily what we did in Ventura because we participate in the global industrial system of making clothes. And so our clothes are made in Asia and in South America. We used to have a lot of fabrics made in the United States before the 90s, but not so much now. Mm -hmm. And so we started to learn at first, I think we didn't want to face what the environmental implications were of our own practices, or, or not our practices, but of the mills and the, and the garment factories that we employed to make our clothing. You mean you knew that something was going on, but you didn't want to know what? It was better to let them deal with it, something like that? Yeah, I think there were two things. One is, could we do anything about it? These weren't our businesses. And two, we didn't want to know too much because we thought, you know, when we, the more you know, the more you feel like you have to act, the more you feel like you have to be responsible. Or like many people, you have to keep suppressing and denying stuff that you know, which is, yeah. I think, a more common tactic in today's world. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we'll change that. If you're a climber or you're a surfer, you're looking, as, you're looking at nature as something that has an intrinsic beauty or an intrinsic life of its own. And you're also understanding your own relationship to that as a part of nature. You know, there's a, there's a quote that I, I almost always start my talks with because I think it creates a context for, for what we're talking about. And that's Aldo Leopold, who said, a thing is right when it tends to support the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. And the thing is wrong when it tends otherwise. And by biotic community, he means everything. He means human life as well as the natural world we're a part of. So it's a fundamentally different ethic if you say, okay, I'm in the resource extraction business, and my business is to make as much money as possible from this resource in the ground. And any other, any other considerations are, are secondary the environmental health of the workers or the communities or the depletion of the resource, all of that becomes secondary. Whereas if you have a, if you feel that your business should support rather than degrade the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community, that leads you to undertake all your activities with a very different mindset. So it's really the relationship between the company and the world. Yeah. That's going to set the tone of the relationship. If you're extracting a non-renewable resource, you didn't say non-renewable, but it's, I mean, they're generally going after non-renewable resources, then it's just how much money can I make? And then your competitive relationship with the others, it's going to be like, okay, how much, how little can I spend? Right. Exactly. And you're looking at nature as something that's, you want to keep and sustain the way it is and that, and, and, and relate with it. And so that's a maintenance relationship or a non-disturbing relationship. Right. Or at this point, it becomes almost a restorative relationship Yeah. or a regenerative relationship. I mean, I think the thing that we look at, one of the things we're aware of, because we participate in, in, in this in, industrial system, is that almost everything we do is creating more environmental harm than good. So, yeah. So let's get back to where you were. You were saying yeah. that you source from these places and, and it was time to say, all right, what's, what's going on? Where's this material coming from? Right. And the process, you know, occurred over time and it consisted of baby steps. One of the 
first big lessons we learned was this is a story we often tell too. We we're doing going gangbusters. We're expanding our business thirty to forty percent a year. We open up a store in Boston. Three days later, we had to shut the store down because we have a problem with the ventilation. Employees are getting headaches and stomach aches. Call in an environmental engineer and ask him. You know, he fixed the problem. We said what caused it, and he said, "Oh, that was uh, formaldehyde off gassing from the cotton clothes stored in your basement." Mm-hmm. So this is the first realization we have that cotton, which we had thought of as a natural fiber and much more benign than other things that we use like polyester, which comes out of an oil well or steel or uh, iron, it, it turns out that cotton had environmental implications. So we did some research, hired an independent researcher to look at all of the major, the four major fibers we used and found out that cotton was the most harmful. And then we went through a process that took several years of converting uh, entirely from conventionally grown cotton because it wasn't the formaldehyde that was the main problem. It was the intensive use of chemicals in the cultivation of cotton that creates so much environmental harm. So we, we changed entirely to organic cotton. And it was a very difficult process that involved our relationship to the entire supply chain it involved our relationship to our own employees because of the demands we were making on them in order to create a new infrastructure for uh, cotton sportswear. So that was kind of the third major step in our revolution. And once we made that step, which involved our relationship to our suppliers and involved our relationship to employees, it also involved our relationship to our customers because we had to persuade our customers why we were making that change. This story I've heard several times. Yeah. You left out what, was there like at least one bet the farm moment where Yvonne came yeah. back and said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we got two years to, we, we're not going to sell this stuff. Like, yes. Yeah. The company's not going to exist if we're going to sell that stuff. Well, it wasn't that the company wouldn't exist, but that we would be out of sportswear. So we said, okay, we're switching entirely. We, we made this decision in the fall of 94. And we said, okay, by fall of 96, or spring of 96, this entire line is going to be organic. We're never going to use conventional cotton again. And if we fail, we won't be making anything out of cotton. In my experience, on a personal level, for sure, every time that I've done something like that for myself, whether it's my diet, my travel habits, you know, taking on those podcasts, it's always worked out. And that seems to have been the case with you guys several times over. Right. And... I think that it's, it's not what you give up, but what you replace it with that is by your values. Yeah, I think there's a connection to what a group of people can do and what an individual can do there. And that is that if you make a decision in favor of your values and act on that, you're able to act more wholeheartedly. And when you're able to act more wholeheartedly, that brings a, an energy to your work and also a level of agreement and cooperation in a, in a business situation that makes a huge difference. I mean, that's something that I really observed. And I think we talked about that last time that having this 45 year history with the company, you know, I, I can look back at times when we simply weren't capable of doing what we're capable of doing now. And it wasn't because we were poor. It's because of this evolution of having actually uh, faced real problems without going, you know, without yielding to cognitive dissonance or to cynicism, acting on them, 
finding that we had limited success, finding that that's something that enlivens everyone and commits everyone to a common cause. And I think personally, when we do that, when we do something, it's either a no to something or it's something saying, you know, I want more more of this in my life and I'm going to pursue it no matter what. We're able to live more wholeheartedly. And when we live more wholeheartedly with more commitment, you don't have that resistance or that internal drag. Yeah, I think you actually have like an acceleration because yes. each one leads to something bigger. You can't get to the big changes if you haven't done the little changes. People who are listening, I think a lot of them are thinking, well, if I, I can do what I want, but if a billion others don't, what difference does it make? I mean, one thing is a billion others aren't going to change if you don't. I mean, not that you're going to cause that, but if, if you don't, then certainly everyone, it, we can't get everyone. But also that when you do it, well, I want people who are guests, such as yourself, to share what their experience was. And I, think, I hope people hear it's not deprivation. It's value and joy and, right. and it being able and you know, leadership, the leadership in, in the title. And if you say, if no one else does stuff, then what I do doesn't matter. That is the opposite of leadership. That's being led by people you disagree with. A lot of the things that I've learned that are most useful and applicable for me in when I think about the environment came from business, accounting, responsibility, things like that, systems perspectives. Well, I guess I got that from mathematics originally, but still, it's a a pretty big in business. And people in business, I would think, would be able to get this stuff the best and be able to act on it the most. But I think it has to come from this perspective, maybe that we talked about earlier about extraction versus cohabitation, that if you come from an extractive perspective or an Enron perspective of compartmentalizing and not caring about one part, it just doesn't connect. But I feel like the tools of business are, are really, you know, like an imbalance sheet. If you're running your business based on, how to put it, if you're operating costs, if you're paying your operating costs out of investment capital instead of your revenues, you're in trouble. Right. And if you think that you're if your inventory is going down and you're acting like it's not, you're in trouble. You got to get rid of that COO or you, whoever the operations person is. And, and like, you got you to keep track of your inventory. And you gotta, it's like this is going down and you can't replace it. And right. you depend on it. You got to figure out what you're going to do. Well, what we have those is a very partial compartmentalized sense of economics in which the, uh, and for businesses, they don't have to account for I mean, this has been an argument for 25 years. John Elkington and businesses don't pay for externalities. So, you know, what you have is a pursuit of of, uh, private profit, but a lot of the losses due to environmental degradation or most of the losses due to environmental degradation are are socialized and given to us as as citizens because you don't have to pay for the pollution of the water or the drawing down of the aquifer. And so I, I, you know, I, I think one of the things we we need is uh, everything that you you describe in traditional accounting, which came up, you know, from Florentine monks mm-hmm. six hundred years ago. A lot of people have been saying, okay, well, how do you then do triple bottom line accounting? Nobody has really come up with a good system for that, but I think that that's something that we cannot lose sight of at this point. Is that the we are the way we look at gross national product, the way we look at economic health completely excludes the environmental harm that we're doing. Yeah, I feel like capitalism 
is very effective for a certain set of assumptions. And some of those assumptions, they, as far as anyone knew, they were valid for a long time and they're not that valid anymore. And we have to adjust based on, I, I like how Richard Feynman says it. You know, if you, if you have a theory and it disagrees with observation of, of the world, <laughs> yeah. the theory's wrong, not the world. You've got to change your theory. Right. And yeah. I don't feel like people have gotten that. <laughs> a lot of businesses are founded the way Evil Chouinard started his little climbing equipment business in his backyard out of a kind of basic human interest, a, a specific, something specific that they wanted to do. And that's a wonderful creative impulse that cannot really be lived out except in what we think of as business. You know, you don't, government and, and academia, they can't create those kinds of things. They can't do what artists do and they can't do what entrepreneurs can do. But I think if we're going to justify and say, okay, that, that business can pay for itself only really by addressing these big social environmental problems. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. This core issue of acting, of not just knowing, but doing. Mm -hmm. Now, as I'm sure I mentioned to you before, a big part of this podcast is that I ask the guest, I invite the guest to consider a value, something they care about with the environment and take on a personal challenge to do that more. Now, you may be, sometimes I hit this challenge with people who have been doing this for a long time. They generally have done all the things. And it's not like there's no low hanging fruit left, but I will still offer you the opportunity if you're up for it to think of a value that you'd like to act on, act on and, and see if you can come up with something that you could do to talk about later. Oh, and, and I have to say that the, um, some constraints and some unconstraints that it doesn't have to be something that you have to, you don't have to solve all the world's problems overnight because some people, are like, <laughs> okay. some people think if I don't, you know, then it has to be something that you do, not something that you tell other people to do. Right. You have to make it up, not me. And it can be something short term. But I ask people when they do their challenge, even if they say they're not going to eat meat for a month, to think about what it would be like if they did it long term, maybe, you know, their whole life. Right. And it has to move the needle on something, not just, it can't be awareness or facts or knowledge. It has to be something that makes a measurable difference in terms of whatever it is. It could be less pollution or it could be uh, less emissions of greenhouse gases or it could be. Uh, reclaiming land or topsoil, lots of different things it could be. Mm-hmm. Would you like to take on a challenge? Sure. Could it also include reclaiming time? I mean, I've tried to be as, as um, accommodating as I can with so, that it's something measurable. So something measurable. Can okay. you, it could be. What, what, yeah. what do you mean? I, I'm not sure yet. I'm, it's actually a good time to think about this because I'm, we're, you know, we're, it's the beginning of the year. I'm planning out my year where, I'm trying to figure out kind of my long-term employment and all that. So it's a good time to think about these things, but I, I would like about a few weeks to uh, to come up with something. But the first thing I thought of was that I was, you've mentioned this, you were, you were talking about your, your impatience with Facebook and Google. There's a certain, um, and I've read about this, this is it's called the colonization of time or colonization of, of, of private life. 
um, that we give over so much to these electronic connections and to these, and the idea that struck me was, okay, what if I, you know, what if I can uh, uh, set about a, a goal to reclaim a certain por- portion of my time to be actually really free from those conventions that I would then use for creative work. It would not be just to read the paper. Well, you're in luck because there's a guy who I interviewed a little while ago and he was at a total, he was at an almost total loss of what he could do to change his effect on the environment. I, I was shocked that someone couldn't think of like just turning off lights, but what he came up with was he was going to use a cell phone less and his cell phone is his connection to social media and so forth. Yeah. And I thought, all right, technically if the cell phone's not on, that's using less power. It's like the least power using stuff around, but as it turns out, when I talked to him the second time, it made a really big difference on him because it turns out that his screen broke soon after that. And instead of uh-huh. fixing it right away because of this challenge, he decided to go without using the cell phone for a while. And next thing you know, he's going with the wife and the dog to the beach. This is, you know, yeah. earlier. And he's working outdoors and he's learning about all the stuff that was like all there. But when your eyes are fixed on the, on the device, you don't see it. And so environment, I normally think of environment as like protect and, and greenhouse and pollution but it's also joy, watch the dog yeah. running on the beach and stuff like that. And so because of that one working out so well, yours sounds so similar. I'm like, I, I see this going well too. Of course, okay. it's going to be your experience. I, w- I would say maybe if just to make it like a power, just to humor me, maybe the things that you do instead, if they're not using, if they're not using something plugged in, then we can yeah. say it's definitely not using power. Yeah. So let's make it a smart goal, if that's cool. Because it sounds like you had this in mind and, and it'll fit in with something you've been wanting to do. That is to say it fits with your values. It may be like one four-hour block in a working day, completely electronically disconnected in which I'm still working. And is that so one day that means total I can work or one day per week or one day per one month? One day per week, one day per week. So one morning per week. So I can be writing, but I can't be using a computer or... Actually, or I do have an old manual typewriter in the bit in the attic, but I, I would be writing with a pen. And how many weeks would it take to get a good experience of this to share on a second conversation? So let's do let's do three months. All right, three months. So, so let's see, we're January, February, March. So April. Right. Are you up for scheduling that conversation? Sure. So today's January fourth. So that would make February four, uh, April fourth. Look at the calendar. That's my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we try for um, the fifth? Okay. Yeah. I'd love to keep this conversation going and just explore different areas because I think the big thing is you, that I took away from this is there's in the individuals within Patagonia as well as the company of Patagonia, there was a development and growth that I thought was just there from the beginning, but it's not. And it took time and developed. No, and, it's progressive. And I'd love to talk to you more about that, about yeah. what I, where I think that those stages of development came. So let's pick up there where we left off, as well as to hear um, a midpoint of how things are going with the four-hour block. Okay. And I, I often ask at the end, is there anything we didn't think to bring up or I didn't think to ask about? But I feel like there's like a lot. I think we just covered it. I, I, I think that I would have, that I'd love to talk more about what I, you know, this combination of having owners who are really committed and then having people working cooperatively to achieve these ends that I, that in a way that is now possible that wasn't possible 10 or 15 years ago. Let's pick up there next time. Okay. Thank you very much and uh, enjoy your challenge. 
And I look forward to hearing about it. And I look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully the next time or the time after that. Okay, great. Thanks. And enjoy the storm. (laughs) (laughs) I will. All right. Okay, bye. Okay, take care. I appreciated most out of this conversation hearing the evolution of the company Patagonia and thinking not in terms of a company, but of a group of people, in some ways going back to how things have been in many ways before, in some ways doing things that no one had done before. His personal challenge, I think he expects a lot out of it. I've done things where I've unplugged for, you know, I do these meditation retreats where I have no reading, no writing, no talking, no internet, no phones for 10 days at a time. I think he expects a lot out of it, and I expect he's going to get even more. So I'm really looking forward to the next one. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.